Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Greetings and felicitations, children of technology, or whomever, however, wherever I might find you. This is Alan Averill, this is Agitators Anonymous, this is episode 105, 106, who knows who is counting, still season one, apparently. Well, anyway... So, this podcast will be um, a continuation of some of the thoughts, some of the ideas, some of the discussions. Well, it's not really a discussion, is it? It's more of a monologue, but about the music industry that I've been um, doing over the last while, pivoting a little bit from some of the culture and politics and all that kind of stuff, as I had a great sense of inertia about the whole thing. I sense that everybody, it's my new favorite word, inertia. Um, uh, just a terrible weariness with having to deal with all of that stuff over and over again. And as someone said, oh, you and your pandemic waffle. Waffle. Indeed. Well, anyway, so let's have a little waffle about the music industry. Um, I'm recording this just before we are about to go on our tour, The Last Crusade Before Doomsday. Primordial Swallow the Sun in Rome. The dates are listed below. And hope to see you at some of those. Just keep your distance. Um, and I think that there will be podcasts or variations of podcasts and themes on the road that I'm going to record. Now, that's going to be a little bit of um, a test, a little bit of a trial to see how I'm going to figure that out. Get in touch with some new technology that's going to help me able to do that. Well, look, we're surrounded by microphones every day. How hard can it be? So this is the last podcast I'm recording just before setting off to have one in the bag, as they say. So this will come out after you've just heard my podcast, if you have been listening, about um, how the structure of a tour works, how it comes about, all of these newfound, um, or, well, let's call them new trials and tribulations that are going to be at the heart of touring from here on in. Does it become a luxury item, so to speak? Does it not? Well, it would seem to many of us that just living and not only working would seem to be something of a luxury item. But as I said in the last podcast, 
if you pump trillions of dollars into a pandemic economy, which for the most part seems to have been stolen by kleptocratic multinationals, then what goes up must come down. And that is how inflation works, I suppose. The value of money is linked to how much of it is swimming around, etc. How much has been printed? Swimming is the wrong analogy there, anyway. So, I thought it might be... Oh, well, I should mention the sponsors, MetalBlade.com. If you're in North America, mention the promo code ALAN and you should get 10% off your order. Maybe you want to order that new Cannibal Corpse, etc. All manner of amazing things over the last 40 years. Go and take a look at that. Also, underneath, there will be links to Spotify playlists that I have made of old Metal Blade stuff. This podcast might come in two parts. We'll see how we get along. What I wanted to do was just basically... It's because of watching a bunch of old documentaries examine the role of musicians of the music industry and the people who consume it over the decades. Even though, of course, um, some of those decades I was not quite old enough to have been active in, um, some I was. And also, it's a measure of just looking back at, as I said, autobiographies, documentaries, having a little bit of a look into how things have changed. So I thought it might be kind of interesting to take a look at the difference between being a musician um, or being involved in the music industry right now in 2022 um, or pre-pandemic even um, and then go all the way back in as much as I can manage to understand to be um, informed to the maybe the 1970s. Um, Now I do have some experience of back in the day as they say from the 90s from the noughties and the 2010s, of course. I wasn't there in the 80s, even if I was old enough to have some understanding, and certainly not in the 70s, of course not. So my views on the way things were in those days are based on, as I said, conversations with plenty of people who worked in the industry back then, biographies, podcasts, um, just discussions with older musicians and anecdotes from people who worked within the industry. You can disagree with some... um, No problem. Let me know in the comments or add your own slant on things below. Um, So let me know how near or far from the mark I seem to have got with some of these observations. Um, First off, there's no particular order to the observations, and that isn't going to surprise you if you've been listening to the podcast for over 100 episodes that I sort of ramble across different topics. You know this. This is what you don't pay the entry fee for. Indeed. So... They are, as you will, um, whatever kind of came into my mind at the moment, not chronological. And you might find I jump around the timeline, but hopefully it makes some kind of sense. I've just sort of um, written a couple of, I call them when I used to study power words, power words, words that you write down on a page and make a sort of scribbly bunch of Venn diagrams branching out from almost like a family tree. And each word would trigger Um, a thought, a memory, a story, an anecdote, and you would move across left to right like this. And that was how I used to study. And that's often sometimes how I do the podcasts. I just start with a bunch of maybe 10 or 12 words and then just sort of work sideways, crawling in some sort of interminable um, spider-like cascade across the page. So, well, that's kind of how my brain works, I suppose. So first things first, jamming, rehearsing. Um, but first things first, that was the first two words that I've written down. Um, the approach to making music, to being in a room with other people. Now, obviously, that's changed um, considerably, so let's get into that. But there are, firstly, some important contexts to address. 
Um, the first one being that on average in the 1970s, I mean, I'm may basically, I suppose, more specifically looking at the USA, but it's it's um, because that's where most of, I suppose, um, the musical Western hegemony comes from along with the UK but I'll I'll go I'll I'll move across that as well but first things first they're important as I said things context to address um and that is that the average um in the in the 1970s most families take home pay industrial wage was growing people could afford especially especially if you were in the US and a um you know a basement some instruments the uh, the average american post world war 2 dream um, of upward mobility for your average industrial worker was in full swing and in some elements across Europe as well, um, particularly Northern Europe. And um, combined with, of course, the growth of 70s rock and let's consider it the general mood of optimism. Despite the hangover, of course, of the Vietnam War and the continuing Cold War issues, the mood across the USA, by all accounts, was positive. Let's say it was all a bit Van Halen. Um, and by that... I'm being surreptitious. Uh, I've used that word a few times. Maybe I should look up what it means. What I do mean by that is that um, we can see clearly, you know, you can probably see in your own wages that for the last 10, 20 years, they've been stagnating. Um, the 1970s was a period of um, growth, I suppose, for a lot of areas, industrial areas, your average take-home pay. Now, maybe it didn't come to other countries. Maybe it didn't come to Ireland until the 1990s. But there's been um, sort of periods of upward mobility. And I think these do affect what I'm going to um, talk about. The UK, for example, in the 1970s was mired in debt. There was, you know, race riots. The IMF was called into the country, I think, in 1972, um, somewhere in the early 1970s. Huge joblessness and unemployment. And we can say that um, 70s glam was a sort of sonic pushback against the gloom of the industrial horizon. The opening chords of Sabbath somehow seem to define the mood in the UK. Despite despite this, I would have to observe people, um, and this is maybe the most important thing that I'm trying to get at. People back then, and even into, into the 80s, they were not saddled with huge debts. Being a student graduating in the early 1980s, and I'm going to place some of my understanding um, in relation to how it was back then with chats I've had with older late 70s, early 80s musicians who were starting out, maybe people who were a decade older than myself. Um, and this is one of the most important things I'm trying to get at in understanding where we are um, and the aspirations of uh, young people when they pick up those instruments. Um, people were not saddled with huge debts. Being a student graduating in the early 1980s and picking up that axe as you did on hearing Venom a la Kerry King um, well, at least after the spandex and all that kind of thing, you were not, as kids are now, often emerging into a form of financial slavery, saddled with huge debts. And I think this is an important economic consideration when we think about these things. Um, living in 1981, as New Every British Heavy Metal broke out as our heroes like a Dave Mustaine or a James Hatfield set out, was cheaper. The idea that you might get on the property ladder, have an apartment in a capital city, was not as landish as it seems now, where artists are clearly driven from most capital cities across the Western world by, well, once upon a time it was um, simple old gentrification. And now we discuss companies like BlackRock, for example, owning everything. You shall own nothing and you shall be happy. This ideology of new debt. Um, 
And I think that it's an important context to view um, the aspirations of young people because, as I said, in the late 70s and the, even the 1980s, and I think back even to my own family, etc., you should maybe consider this yourself as well. The idea of saddling people with debt is a form of financial slavery fundamentally. And this is kind of something that only really begins to happen in, I think, the last 10, 15, 20 years, maybe the late 1990s, as people bought into this sort of full embrace of this new sweeping, um, I suppose, free money capitalism. Is that the right word? Anyway. As there are older label folks I chatted to who say to me things like, well, you know, and I've had these conversations over the years with people and they said things to me like, well, these kids, you know, they don't want to tour anymore. Believe me, they do. And they would love to be able to live from music. But that route that was open to a band in 1977 or 1983, um, if you were good enough or lucky enough, um, um, of charitable growth, at least the optimism that that might happen. Well, this is pretty much gone. This is this is a dream that does not really exist anymore. Most kids are brutally honest of the assessment and they understand much more about the technology and they understand much more um, the dividends. Um, they understand much more how they're being ripped off back than back in the day. But most of the routes out of that to, let's say, escape to the plain fields beyond the gate are pretty much obstructed for them. The dream of making it a musician doesn't really exist anymore. Most people, as I said, are brutally honest of the assessment um, that being a musician is not going to make you any kind of living. The chances of making it to that place on songwriting alone is virtually nil. Um, and I think that this pessimism was not as obvious in other decades. This is how I um, can, this is how I see it. And I think that that discussion is sometimes lost on an older generation of the music industry who still um, think that through hard graft you can make it through. And of course, for every, you know, there are, of course, ghosts and gojiras and behemoths and bands who do. But, you know, they sell a fraction of the records that bands did in the 70s and 80s, and they certainly aren't having radio hits that are going to, um, you know, feather the financial nest every year. And I would certainly like to see their streaming incomes because I can tell you, uh, they're probably very little. Anyway, the, my point is that um, the idea of becoming a, a professional musician, I think, was um, there was a much more optimistic view of that in those decades. And so young people were not saddled with huge financial debt. So let's throw So I'm going to roll through some of the ideas that will be washing around my dull grey matter. It might split the podcast into two. I'm not really too sure. But back in the day, bands rehearsed. They rehearsed a lot. Every day, often. Um, you've read the stories of bands all living in the same house, rehearsing in the basement from 70s huge icons, from your Alice Coopers and Iggy Pops and Ramones, all the way then through to your Metallicas, to in the early 90s, your Cannibal Corpses, um, honing their skills every single day. Um, you couldn't fake being a tight rehearsal band in 1976 or 1986 like you can now. I know plenty of stories from engineers who tell me about bands who arrive who've never been in the same room together, um, expect digital miracles of cut and paste by the engineer. This was simply not possible back in the day. You had to be as tight as you sounded or as untight as you sounded, if that was what you were looking for. Um, but certainly the idea of a band 
um, forming this tight unit, this tight sort of family unit, and almost just living together, writing together, um, using the basement of the house as their rehearsal room. This is something you hear over and over again from old musicians. And I think that that has changed dramatically and has changed the landscape of what it is to be in a band. I suppose on a tangent there's another reason why prog music was so popular back in the 70s people understood the craft perhaps a bit more um of course punk fundamentally changed things but don't tell me then the ramones weren't rehearsed to within an inch of their lives because they surely were a finely honed rock and roll machine um devastating at 100 paces whenever you saw them live but and this is what i'm trying to get at i suppose is that people's modes of living as people slip into modes of remote living now in the modern age, so bands rehearse remotely, trading files, adding their own parts alone. Um, I mean, I've often said, and I sound like an anachronism, um, but I'll stick to my guns, and that is that to make metal or rock, you need human interaction. Um, you need the human process. And personally, um, I would not uh, like to make music remotely, but plenty of people do. And they see nothing wrong with this. I know bands who jam on Zoom with headphone sets on and they write like this. And sometimes they don't meet in the studio to record. They just send in their pieces and get back their album. Um, and I think this reality just reflects the way the modern world is becoming, how people are cocooned in, the, in their work pods, in the burbs or working alone. Um, like I said, it's not how I want to make metal, but there are bands out there who never meet and write together, mix independently, and if they play gigs, only meet perhaps the day or two before tour. And even, as I've talked before on the podcast, um, the pandemic was very much used as um, a reason for people to um, embrace more methods of not just remote working but remote socializing i mean that's what the metaverse fundamentally is are they going to hold gigs in the metaverse i mean we've all heard stories about um hip-hop artists holding gigs in within the game of um i can't remember the name of the game now that's that's hey boomer what's up yeah whatever it's called twilight or weekend blah 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 you know what i'm talking about or maybe you don't. If you don't, don't dig into it. Don't discover it. Stick to going to your local place to see some gigs. No, the point is that the pandemic was, of course, in my opinion, used as a sort of element of social stress testing to see, oh, maybe will people accept um, not having that communality that they did before as uh, the human monkeys that they are? Will they accept going to a gig on a screen um, just taking part in a streaming event? So... Um, I suppose what it is is that the communality or the human process of making music as a musician is being funneled into that sort of remote gig economy, something you do alone. And the process of doing it alone is what you film. You try and make, I suppose, a, something biographical, something um, in sort of... Um, so it's about the making the content that goes into making that track is almost important or more important than the track. So filming yourself writing, filming yourself discussing the writing, filming every other aspect of it is probably on some level worth, and I use that word sparingly, more to you than the actual song, which most likely less people will listen to than watching you write the song. Um, so I think this sort of reflects the way the modern world is moving, and that's very, very different to back in the day. I mean, I even, over the years, back in the 90s, lived 
in houses with various members of Primordial. And it wasn't uncommon for people to take out the guitars and write together or show each other riffs or go, you know, you would head to rehearsal together, head back from rehearsal to the pub, have a pint, um, you know, have screaming matches and arguments, of course. But um, I'm not going to say we're the monkeys or anything like that, but we did live together. And I think that's something that's sort of dying off in modern society. And it's not just rock or metal, it's across all elements of society. Um, And I think that it's one of the reasons why back in the day, Uh, Bands had this us-against-the-world, die-hard mentality. It's sort of, um, they lived and breathed their music. The Iron Maidens of this world would never exist in a modern climate. Um, And I think that that's fairly clear uh, to say. The band itself was seen as your job, as your purpose. This is what you worked at back in the day, back in the day. The idea that this is how... um, a band feels right now, I think is more or less a kind of fallacy. Primordial is not a professional band on any level. Could we ever have been? Um, it's very unlikely, considering the cost of living in a country like Ireland, but all musicians now work. There's no choice. Again, upward mobility. Bands at one stage had that. There was, you could see, as I said, the sunny uplands of optimism, um, which I've often used that metaphor before, in discussions about the uh, post-Cold War, fall of the Berlin Wall movement of a, a new European middle class. But in these, in this context, when it comes to music, um, I think that uh, back in the day, bands could see, you know, like if you were from the Bay Area, let's say, let's just as an example, Metallica made their way out of there. But if you were an Exodus, Death Angel, Testament, um, there were, there was and there still is a career for those bands if you made it out of the gate whether it was the First Testament album, The Legacy, Bonded by Blood, Exodus. And if you were then on the next tier, which may have been Defiance, Violence, who then, you know, Rob Flynn went on to Machine Head, there was a way out of, you know, the, the, the gate was not quite that narrow. And um, you saw the success of a Metallica or a Slayer and you thought, well, we could have a piece of that. And you took it. Of course, there are many bands who didn't make it from back then, but there are many, many bands who do. Far more bands who have made it to having careers then now will make it out of the gate to follow um, whatever band is from their country who have made it. The chances of you in five or ten years still having some kind of career um, is very, very unlikely. Anyway, the band itself was seen as your job. This is what you worked at, as I said. Um, and there was an element of upward mobility, the sort of, uh, maybe I'm being romantic here, but this one for all, all for one get in the van kind of mentality. You bought gear, you invested in your backline, you bought that van, you played anywhere you could. Um, I mean, okay, look, that could be a romantic vision of how a band, of course, um, was. And it can still exist like that. Um, still, I look at digital flyers of bands I know um, who won't make it, for example, and are doing like, whoa, 45 day van tours. Just saw a poster for some bad co- band called Scumbag Millionaire. I don't know anything about them. Um, and that just the poster, the digital poster, has so many dates that I can't even manage to magnify the image enough to look at them all. But they're still living, having a go, hand to mouth in the van, hawking merch to get to the next city. And that dream never really dies. It just gets slowly asphyxiated. It's just making it through the gate to, as I said, that promised land to pasture. That gate is so small now. And I think the reality is most people realize you don't make it through the gate. And what is making it anyway? 
on these terms, uh, you know, which I'll try and flesh out and discuss, it means many other things. For some buddy in the band maybe it just means becoming um, a great content creator maybe it becomes being an influencer and of course there are people who are just doing it for the experience and people who have gone to other things and people who just go well this is what I do right now at 25 years old but I have no intention of doing this at 30 or 35 um, but back in the day you invested in your backline because you anticipated that one stage you were going to well you know maybe someone will buy a van maybe we'll we'll bring our backline around of course living on an island like Ireland is a little bit difficult but I'm pretty sure Rory Gallagher or Thin Lizzy did that or many other Irish bands did they took their van on the ferry across to England drove up and down England um, I've read stories about Thin Lizzy doing this with Judas Priest back in the mid 70s and maybe you took your van from there and went on the ferry across to Le Havre, across to France, drove around Europe. But that that van that you bought and built, you know, did up for two or three hundred quid. I know people still do this and bands still do this. But back in the day, you invested in all these things. Nowadays, I mean, if you're going to just rehearse on Zoom and write remotely, there isn't really any need for having amps or gear. Of course, you need a guitar um, still, but having all of that gear and having all of that stuff really makes no difference if you're not going to do those kind of things. Um, anyway, but I suppose what is making it? The romantic notion, I suppose, is the Henry Rollins get in the van thing. I've, me I've mentioned that over the last few weeks. I would listen to the audiobook. I would advise that. Um, it, it, it's, you know, it still exists and it's a beautiful... Um, romantic sort of idea. It's a demanding slog, but it's not quite dead yet. But certainly it has changed. And as I said before, how it will change now, um, we're looking at huge um, rises in energy costs, whether it's taking the train, if we get our own personal carbon um, footprint, um, percentages, which, believe me, many people don't believe me when I say things like that might happen, but it's very possible. And therefore, your flights will be limited. You might get digital currency from this sort of some sort of new state currency. Um, and the state might go, well, you've traveled too far this year. You can't purchase what you want. Of course, this sounds like a crazy dystopian idea to many people. I get that. But um, movement is essential to the old version of this music industry and that certainly to me seems to be um, with my pessimistic hat on something that modern society is looking to halt your freedom of movement anyway back in the day I have some more scribbles here on the page um, demos A&R managers all this kind of thing let's have a look at that you made your demo back in the day and then we're talking like maybe late 70s early 80s um, you made your demo back in the day in order to get signed. You sent it round to A&R people, artist um, representative. I think that's what it stands for, yes. To try and make industry waves. Um, and this differed. And, and, and things changed from the early to the late 1980s. By, let's say, 1987, the early death metal bands had started selling their demos for two, three, four, five dollars $5. For example, I ordered many cassettes back in the 88 to 93 period, whether it was Unleashed or Nihilist or Immolation or whatever. Um, even for our own demo with Primordial, we sold, I don't know, maybe 1,000, 1,100 back in the post, um, back in the day, one by one. Um, a kind of a small micro economy uh, that grew up from, uh, throughout the 80s, I suppose. It was the hangover of the DIY nature of New Way British Heavy Metal and Punk. 
Um, but the idea was that you saved up from your gigs, you made your demo, you maybe pressed a seven inch. Um, it's hard to say if bands even really do demos anymore the same way. At least pressing them and giving them to AO and or people won't work as no one wants physical copies anymore. Um, I do remember anecdotally a story of um, a, a local band here giving a boss of a record label who was here on a visit a huge big box, wooden box with cassettes and T-shirts and all sorts of things. And he just looked at me and he says, all I wanted was a USB clip. Um, well, now all you would want would be a link to just stream. You don't even need that USB clip. Um, and so said wooden box just stayed in hotel lobby because what is said person supposed to do with that? Bring it from flight A to flight B to flight C. The nature of all of these things has changed. Um, back in the day, you saved your money to go into a proper studio for a couple of hours and do the demo in order to try and get signed. You often had a manager. Um, nowadays, I've heard people kind of call managers um, in a sort of slightly mocking tone as fanagers, which I understand. Um, and I'll try and explain what that means. But um, managers, uh, I suppose, back in the day were very, very important when there was money to be made. Um, over the over the last decade or two, they've sort of kind ish disappeared to a d degree. Um, I think that's just because there's just less money, really, realistically. But by the, in the late 1980s, bands were writing the fan letters themselves. Back in the 70s and early 80s, the idea of signing with a talent agency, even as a metal band or a representative, was par for the course. If you listen to the amazing Neat Records podcast, that's the label who put out Venom and Tigers of Pantang. Um, their podcast is amazing. I'll, I'll, I'll link it underneath this. Um, they discussed their link to the late 1970s talent scout scene in the north of England, which sounds really strange. It sounds all a bit Phoenix Nights. But you can picture the guy with a tight flannel suit breathing cigar smoke on you with a glass of cognac. Not exactly sure what cognac is, but um, who had... Um, I had picture him with a toupee, but who has a troop of dancers, a juggler and a few local stand ups on his books and is wondering what all the fuss is about this band called Def Leppard, etc. This, I think, would have been pretty common in the 1970s and the early 1980s. You see this in loads and loads of documentaries. And I think this is also in a way kind of what punk was fighting against. But um, they pretty much this pretty much died away as we moved to the late 80s and 90s on some level. Your laptop, um, you know, what, you, what is your laptop now? Back then was a phone and you made calls to get gigs. Again, I would refer to the Minneapolis hardcore documentary. Just put that into YouTube. You'll find it. It's really great um, about Black Flag and Minor Threat. Um, I linked it before, but it makes things very clear. There was big bands. There was stadium bands. And then there was cover bands in the bars. Um, finding a venue that would put on independent bands in the late 70s, early 80s, playing their own music was pretty rare so you know this is very much um you can see this in the the twisted sister documentary for example they talk about just playing two and three gigs a, a, you know a day and they're asked to be doing covers and they're playing for years before they get signed to do their own music because they're doing a circuit that basically people went out to drink to hear people playing um versions of the songs um their their favorite songs at the time 
And so um, this idea of finding independent venues who are willing to take a risk on new and emergent music scenes um, through a network of letter writing and phone calling um, the scene and, and the, the, the nascent thrash metal scene in the 1980s and the, the scene, the uh, touring circuit probably still of 2022, having played in America um, 40 or 50 times over the years, not enough, but sometimes certainly there were venues there that you know um, at some stage or other at Greg Jinn from Black Flag called up in 1981 to get a gig there and that's how this network um, sort of sprung up and it was that to the I suppose the idealism of punk rock and the early hardcore scene that much of this is owed I suppose um, this ideal encapsulated by a Husker Du or a Minor Thread or a Black Flag um, of course Iron Maiden did this up and down the UK um, in 1979 and 1980 in their van called the Green Goddess playing 20, 30, 40, 50 shows. And I've met people who've gone, oh, I saw Maiden here in 1979. Um, so it's not exclusive to punk rock, but the indie touring circuit in the US, and I would imagine in many European countries, owes a lot to um, that one person doing a fanzine who then found a venue, who put on a DJ night, who then invited a band to play a show. Um, and that's where punk and newer British heavy metal um, kind of grew up in opposition to just the idea that you went and stood at the back of a stadium uh, to see Aerosmith or Van Halen or Kiss or whoever it was. Anyway, and I think that where there was a will, there was a way. Now, quite if that exists the same way anymore, I really would doubt it. Um, as I mentioned before, gentrification changed um, cities dramatically. Dramatically? You can use that as a name for your thrash band. Um, dramatically. Um, and these sort of... Uh, I can see it clearly in my own city, in most of the capital cities that I've visited, whether it's Berlin, Melbourne, um, or, you know, you've been in San Francisco or Stockholm. Um, as prime real estate got bought up and different kinds of people moved into different areas, they basically priced out the locals. I often sometimes um, talk about the you know the impacts of gentrification and one of those huge impacts is that it has on the local music scene that artists can't afford to live in cities anymore because the people who've taken their place are tech or IT people and in reality those people as I said before I was joking but not really joking um, they rather Saturday morning yoga and you know hot brunch or blah 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 slam poetry who knows etc etc Dive bars disappear, rock and roll culture disappears, the punk rock bar, the squat bar, the um, anywhere that put on a different varied, varied night is gone and therefore scenes disappear, people change. They don't want um, to go and see those kind of things anymore. And that's how scenes and subcultures just disappear. And um, that kind of scene that grew up in the 80s and the 90s, I mean, even the thrash bands in Europe in the mid-1980s, if you re listen to the documentaries or read the stories about Sodom and Creator and all these kind of bands, they weren't doing full European tours really till about 86, 87, 88. They were playing local gigs or trading a gig. Sodom would trade a gig with Assassin, who would might, you know, crossing the border was, was, was a pretty big deal. You might trade one gig in one other place. Slowly but surely, a network began to grow up. But I would wager that if you took a tour shirt from 1988 and went through the list of venues, most of those venues by now would have disappeared or else they have become something completely different. And booking them at a weekend is certainly not something that's going to happen for you. So venues disappear. I think DJs did for much of that in the 1990s and the noughties. Cheaper to set up and easier to make money on. 
But now, post-pandemic, and this is, I suppose, um, where we pivot back to where being a musician now is, you have to wonder how venues can survive. It's going to take the people who own them to really want to put a lot of love um, into um, or respect and care and curation of their scene to want to keep them alive. You have to wonder how venues can survive. And of course, there is any hint if there is any hint of restrictions coming back, they are done. And that's before we even get to the petrol issue, I suppose. Um, a tour on 50 people a night with a 500 euro guarantee, um, if you've brought your van and you've brought your backline, and you're willing to sleep anywhere and um, eat whatever is thrown at you, could still be possible five years ago. Now, whether that's still possible, I don't know, because that is the grassroots, that is the um, meat and gristle and bone of... Um, live music of the touring industry of the music industry now um, or the traditional music industry of course people will say well we don't need to do that now we can reach way more people with one stream well if that's the truth and that's the future well then I will have to bow out but you can see this reflected in the idea that a band might be big in a particular state or a region and it took them quite a while to break out of that. So you would have a band who was, you know, playing everywhere that they could in upstate New York or in Dublin or in Cork or in London. And many times scenes are a bit kind of insulated like that. So the early touring network was how people broke out of that and broke out into, um, you know, building the structure of the fan base um, in other cities. If you've seen, for example... Um, a band from Eastern Europe or South America in your local venue. Um, this was something that never really happened in the 1970s and 1980s. Those countries were still very isolated economically, whether and politically. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I heard a story that when Sepultura first came to Europe, they just simply looked for the Dynamo Club. Um, they didn't know anything else and just said, hey, we're Sepultura from South America. Can we play here? And, um, you know, they got along with the people so well, somebody gave them something like a broom closet to all stay in and live in for a little while while they got themselves together. And that's kind of how things happened. In the 1970s and the 1980s, I think bands often had managers who dealt with all of this. Bands, um, you know, and that's what the sort of DIY ethic was in opposition to. <clears throat> DIY, do it yourself. That was the ethic of uh, punk rock, hardcore and new average heavy metal, especially was we don't need managers to do these kind of things. But you often hear these stories about 70s managers, famous 70s managers who literally dealt with everything. And of course, bands got paid small uh, dividends at the end of a tour. And it seems that a lot of the money was stolen. But plans, um, the band's plans, the collection of money, the payment of the studio, all of these things, um, booking the gigs, this was something that was sort of farmed out to people outside the band's bands, weren't really expected to do all of that by themselves. And that's one of the conversations I have with many bands now when they say to me, oh, how do we sign to a label? How do we sign with a booking agent? Well, the fact is that <clears throat> maybe things now are a little bit more like they were in 1981, I suppose on some level, in the sense that bands have to hustle for themselves. The idea of um, we've kind of maybe, maybe we've come some element of full circle, um, even though I do think that unfortunately that circle is a little bit, um, you know, the light shining on that circle is a little bit dimmer because their, their ability to be able to make it out as I said, into the sunny uplands of, I suppose, optimism of having a career as a musician are uh, foreshortened. And so therefore, <clears throat> very often people come to me and they say, well, how do I get a booking agency? And I go, well, you know, have you ever, has anyone ever paid you 500 euro for a gig? No. Well, 
how is anybody who's going to book you a gig ever going to get paid? And then how do we deal with flights? But it is sort of like going back to the idea of the early 80s and that people have to hustle for themselves. I mean, one of the more complicated things is um, flights. And for a while there in the 90s and the 2000s, I remember being able to bring Primordial to Germany for a festival, flying out on a Friday back on a Sunday, and you could get five people across and back with the guitars for five, six, seven, eight hundred euro. Those flights are now costing two and a half, three and a half, four, five thousand euro sometimes. Um, and that's not a joke. Okay, if you want to connect two, three times and go through Gdansk on a Thursday and back on a Tuesday, yeah, you can still find cheap flights. But it feels to me that flights are going to become um, very much a luxury again. And how uh, the music industry is going to be able to cope with this, I don't know. Like I said, it points to um, people wanting streaming events and things to be localized and well why would you need to fly from here to there to the other so maybe if you're a berlin band from berlin all right not so much problem you're going to be able to play on a friday but for a band who need to fly i think this is going to create some a whole host of new problems as we go forward because can you really see the prices coming back down again once they've been gouged upwards i find that hard to believe I mean, one important thing is, is tape, um, you know, the cassette tape, the, the, the thing, uh, you know, the, the cassette tape changed the music industry drastically. I mean, that's something that um, you could do an entire podcast on um, anyway. But the ability to copy cassettes, copy demos, that kind of stuff. People have said to me um, that streaming and, you know, pu putting music up on YouTube and all that kind of stuff is the same kind of thing. But I don't really think it is because the cassette tape issue was priming people for when the album came out. In that, you know, when you got cassettes of Morbid Angel, Immolation, Unleashed, back in the day, Dismember, you were waiting for that debut to come out. And you fucking rang up that record store at nine in the morning, just going, have you got the new Dismember like an ever-throwing stream? And you got the train in and you got it. Um, that, I don't think, is existing anymore. So the, the correlation between um, comparing... Uh, tape trading back in the day to the trading of files back in the day or whatever uh, which let's be let's be honest at the time everyone gave Lars Ulrich a bit of a you know a roasting for his approach to Napster but it seems he was a lot more correct about those things than we knew because I don't think that if you look at some of the interviews with people like Jared Lanier and stuff, people who invented, I suppose Silicon Valley invented um, the internet back in the day, um, it wasn't their intention to literally eclipse the ability for musicians to make a living. I think they had a utopian ideal that all art should be free. But the idea, somebody said to them, well, what you're going to do is going to put an entire industry of, music, of people, more or less, make it um, impossible for them to make a living and gatekeep their ability to even do that. I don't think they would have really, um, of course, wanted that or understood that. <clears throat> so I think this podcast is going to be divided into two. But I think one important thing when we consider what it means to be a musician now compared to back then, for example, is um, all of the sort of like micro details, all of these just being a musician alone um, is not really enough. If you consider how much. Um, a video back in the day that got heavy rotation on MTV broke a band's career. Nowadays, the reality is, of course, that you need a video. You need something. Um, you need something optical. It's an optical world, as we discussed in our podcast with Katy Brown about gaming and that kind of thing. 
But nowadays, musicians or bands are kind of expected to be their own video editors. Not only are you expected to have somebody in the band who's who's talented at creating content and engaging with fans and almost being like a, a sort of mini TV presenter, which seems crazy, even though bands, of course, did TV things back in the day. But... Um, you're kind of expected to be your own video editor. And that's sort of quite different. If you think about um, the power you have within your own phone to manage to do all of those things, these were not um, capabilities that one had back in the 1980s, the 1990s. And so, of course, there's a whole structure of other employment that existed around the music industry that is kind of gone as well, Um, whether it was video production companies, um, cable TV channels, um, all of these things started to disappear as well. As well. So I think one of the biggest differences, for example, now and even ten years ago, is that um, as a musician, you know, on uh, the structure, the stepping stone from which a label would want to work with you from, or book an agency would want to and um, work with you from, that stepping stone is your social media imprint. Now you can, of course, be like Mugwa and not do any of it, and that works for them. But for your average band who um, maybe makes, you know, seven out of ten music and shows promise, um, a booking agent or a record label is going to look at them and go, well, where is your social media imprint? Now, back in the day, that would have been a manager's job. That would have been somebody else's job to create that structure around a band um, and leave the band pretty, pretty much alone to do you know, their own music. Of course, there was the DIY, punk, rock, indie, new way, British heavy metal ethic, etc., etc., of pressing your seven inches and, you know, hustling. Hustling is a word I like. You are hustling. But nowadays, um, you are sort of expected to have that structure in place already as for something, um, as something for um, the label or the agency to work with. And without that, it's almost impossible because that is like, in a sense, your ready-made marketing tools. So it's all kind of vulgar and, you know, there was maybe a distance between a musician and the vulgarity of the music industry once upon a time, even though many bands just got ripped off and never made any money, etc., etc. It was a different kind of vulgarity. Now you're, you, now you kind of, you have some element of control over it, but you're asked to partake in it but there is no particular recompense or financial reward for taking part in that kind of thing. And you do realize that, of course, creating content is not the same as being a musician. My friends, I hit 45 minutes waffling about that off the bat. I think I'm going to make a part two of this um, and just ramble across the other, the rest of my ideas. Um, so let's leave it at that for now. I think 40, 45 is about the limit of anyone's attention span, especially mine. So my friends, Agitators Anonymous, Nemtiango underscore Primordial or on Instagram. If you want to support the show and you've got this far, God damn it, I applaud you. Go to patreon.com slash Alan Averill to support the show for other extra podcasts, all this kind of other bits and pieces, etc. Episode 105 was just a ramble across the music industry and a few differences and changes, which I will continue on part two the next time. See you on tour for as long as that lasts until doomsday, my friends. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.